everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. We're on to episode 76, and recall on this one, wood identification. If there is a theme to my inbox, whether that's my lumber update at Gmail inbox, or my Renaissance Woodworker inbox, or heck, my McIlvain uh, uh, inbox, it's what is this board? Or what is this log? Can you identify this wood for me? And don't get me wrong. I often get, I get these emails start with, I know you hate getting these, but, um, <laughs> which is always funny. I don't hate being asked to identify wood. What I dislike, hate's a very strong word. What I dislike is people who send out of focus pictures of the face grain of a board that has finish on it or is covered in dirt or half buried in a pile of other things and say, can you identify this species? Because they're, well, it's very difficult to identify a wood species by looking at the face grain. It's really difficult to identify a species when it's covered with paint, which stain might as well be paint, right? It obscures the grain, it obscures the color. It's even more difficult to identify it when it's piled with a bunch of other boards on top of it. So I don't mind helping people identify what species of wood they have, but there is some work that needs to be done and before a proper identification can happen. So this episode is my attempt to try to educate folks on, on the process I go through to identify a wood species. Now I'm gonna say that and say that this is an audio podcast. If you haven't figured that part out yet and you're waiting for the video to kick on, I don't wanna disappoint you, this is audio only. And it can be very difficult to describe the elements of wood identification in audio format. So I will preface all of this and say that this is just the tip of the iceberg, folks. I'm hoping to give you kind of a blueprint that you can follow and some resources you can use to help you identify those wood species. That doesn't mean I don't wanna get emails from anybody anymore and I'm gonna yell at anybody for sending me an email about what asking for wood identification. But hopefully, those emails that I get going forward will have better imagery that I can actually help you to identify instead of me having to explain, look, I can't do anything for you because one, two, three, X, Y, Z, whatever. Anyway, um, let, let's, let's get some business out of the way. Uh, thank you as always to my patrons of the Lumber Update. We've had several new people join uh, the 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 effort, if you will, over at Patreon. Um, if you are interested in sponsoring the show, go to patreon.com slash lumber update and you can do anything you want there. Annual, daily? I don't think anybody's ever done daily, but you know, as little as a dollar a month helps the show and I greatly, greatly appreciate it. We had some interesting um, industry news. You may remember way, way, way back at the beginning of this show, um, the fire at Notre Dame had just happened and I did an episode on that um, on those timbers and, and kind of what it was going to mean for the restoration. Well, here we are several years later and things are, are moving along. I have made mention in the past that the, the white oak trees have been felled. Well, there is a YouTube video that was put out and thank you to everybody who sent this to me. Lots of you have sent this to me, but there's some great details, not only on, on the wood part of things, but on like the lead dust and all kinds of things and, and really where they're heading. Even some really cool things on... Um, 
the carvings and the treatments they're putting into the stone. But long story short, the, the trees have been felled. Many of them are drying. Uh, it was really interesting to watch this video because I know a few of these mills. Um, they're mills that we have bought uh, French oak from in the past. Uh, it was kind of cool because I'm pretty sure one of them is like right off the root of the, um, the Giro d'Italia, the, the Tour of Italy that's going on right now. Um, so it was, it was kind of neat thing. I, I'm, I'm watching them saw videos, but my other passion in life, I'm like looking, hey, I wonder if there's any cyclists riding by in the background. <laughs> but this is, this is really cool to watch simply because you get to see just the scope of these timbers, especially the few that they've cut down specifically um, in, in the tower itself that are, you know, hundreds of feet long. Really, really cool stuff. And then there's a great section in here on restoring the, um, the organ, the, the wind box, which is fascinating. Um, I, I've obviously been around organs as a musician, as a vocalist, been around organs, know many organists, but I've never really like thought about taking them apart and seeing how it all works. And this central wind box, it's, um, it's amazing. So anyway, thank you to everybody who sent me that. I highly, highly encourage you to go check out this video. I will link to it in the show notes. I'll even embed it over on uh, lumberupdate.com. So I got some feedback on uh, some previous episodes, and this is a, a very interesting um, email on several fronts from Chad. Um, Chad is uh, a luthier. He says, I make ukuleles and guitars, and I like to use interesting and sustainable materials in the instruments I build. I've sourced materials from both local Sawyers and Reclaim Lumber stores, but one of the challenges is finding suitable material for fretboards. Very hard woods like ebony and rosewood are best for retaining frets and standing up to years of use, particularly for steel string instruments. Domestic slash sustainable alternatives that are very hard and look good are difficult to find. However, one alternative that I used on a recent guitar build is pistachio. It has a janka hardness somewhere between, between hard maple and rosewood and is aesthetically interesting. All that it is, pistachio is a very cool looking wood. I ordered my fretboard blank from woodfromthewest.com. Let me make sure I got that right. Woodfromthewest.com. Yeah. I don't know the owner of this business, but I think he'd be an interesting guest on your show because he gets pistachio and some other woods from unproductive trees that are removed from orchards in California. So he has repurposed a waste stream into a specialty product and is a good example of some of the themes you've been hitting on in recent shows. Absolutely, Chad. This is very, very cool. First and foremost, pistachio, um, nut woods, fruit woods in general, great density and actually really nice to work with. A lot of high oil, oil contents and they're almost kind of self-lubricating. But I love this idea because you're right. The, the, in the luthier world, certainly we've talked about soundboards in the Tonewood episode before, but the really specific things like fretboards, because they have to retain those metal frets and they do take a heck of a lot of abuse. And they're kind of the showpiece of, of that stringed instrument. Having an alternative is fantastic because what's being used right now, those species are, if they're not endangered, they're very, very close to being endangered. So needing to have something like that is, is fantastic. So thank you, Chad, for writing that in. I will look up Wood from the West and uh, see if we can't uh, uh, talk about that because I love the idea of repurposing a, um, a waste stream as we've talked about in previous episodes. Next up in some feedback is, uh, well, plywood. It seems like all anybody can talk about right now is plywood. 
But there's been a, a YouTube video that came out um, that, again, I've gotten a lot of emails about this, but the guy in the video talks about using eucalyptus plywood as an alternative to Baltic birch. He makes, basically his entire business is based around birch plywood, so obviously decidedly concerned when it becomes so expensive. And I've heard from a lot of people saying, you know, what are your opinions on eucalyptus plywood? Eucalyptus plywood is not a new thing. Um, eucalyptus, like uh, many people may already know, I mean, eucalyptus is like probably 20 different species that you could say is eucalyptus. Um, it's widespread. It goes relatively quickly. It doesn't really have a huge um, other purpose for it. So it's it's it seems to be a decent species for it. The thing with saying eucalyptus plywood is a good alternative to Baltic birch is, yes, certain panels may be a good alternative. They may have zero voids. They may have that stability built into them. But there's a lot of different panels made from eucalyptus, and some are very low quality, designed to be at a lower price point, while some are still um, at a higher price point. So I, I urge you, if you are looking for an alternative, don't just think eucalyptus plywood is like the rubber stamp and it's going to be um, the perfect solution. You got to make sure you're doing a research. And more importantly, like I've been saying from day one, look at the price point. It is an engineered manufactured product. The price point is going to guide you. If it's cheap, its corners have been cut. Um, the biggest issue that's getting, that's preventing eucalyptus plywood from really um, going like gangbusters is the supply chain. Um, it's sourced from Oceania. Is that still a term? Is that still what we call like the Australia, Australasia, Indonesia, South Pacific? I don't know. But it, it has a very long supply chain. It grows lots of places, but that's the most well-established place. Um, other places where it grows, it's such a tertiary species that it's not generally harvested or um, there's not the, the industry there to um, peel veneers and things like that. And shipping veneer logs becomes cost prohibitive. So there's a lot of issues further up the supply chain. There's not really a eucalyptus ply manufacturer right where the eucalyptus, the, the eucalyptus plantations are located. So it will end up being a difficult product, not only to key to control pricing, but also to control quality control. Um, and I don't think it has the um, uh, quantities uh, available. Certainly the industry is not built up around it to really keep up with the monster that is birch plywood. So it's kind of what I talked about in the plywood episode, uh, the birch plywood episode is Baltic birch is such the 10,000 pound gorilla. Now, while it's, it's you know, persona non grata, there may be an opportunity for something else to step forward, but it's a really risky proposition because how long will Baltic birch, specifically Russian birch, be verboten? You know, at what point will it come back in and be acceptable? And, you know, what kind of capital investment will it take somebody to bring eucalyptus to the big time? Right now, Guarnica does make a great um, eucalyptus panel, but they make multiple eucalyptus panels. So, yes, it may be an alternative, but please don't just think, oh, it's eucalyptus. It must be great. No, there's going to be multiple products that roll up under eucalyptus plywood. And honestly, it's not real easy to find. So that's a little bit difficult as well. Doug also wrote in and he brought up another point about plywood and uh, the Ukraine war. He says, when the rebuilding starts, it will have a massive impact. 
to the construction industry. So there will be tremendous demand for softwood lumber and sheet goods locally to the Ukraine. Um, so even if the war ends quickly and quote nicely so that people are willing to purchase plywood from Russia again, so much of it will end up going to reconstruction in the Ukraine that I think prices will remain high and availability will still be poor for years. It's an interesting thought, Doug. Um, this has certainly happened in the past where there have been natural disasters and things like that, and the supply chain has essentially been co-opted. And instead of you know shipping stuff off around the world, it's funneled locally to um, support it. I remember the earthquake in Armenia when this happened. We had a massive shortage on building supplies for a while that were coming out of Russia. So interesting, interesting thoughts. Thank you, Doug, for sharing that. So let's, let's talk about wood identification, right? Um, and again, let me just pre uh, preface all this by saying this is not going to be a comprehensive course. There's a lot that's difficult to do when I don't have slides, I don't have visuals to show them to you. But I'm gonna describe a few things and give you some resources and hope you, you know, get you kind of on your way. So um, let's kick this off with an, an email from Jim. Uh, he says, uh, do you have any thoughts on wood identification resources? It's hard to figure out which book to buy or website to use. So the answer to this, Jim, is both. You want both a book and the website. Why I find books are very helpful because you can literally flip through them. One that I like is called the Wood Bible. Um, there's a bunch of wood identification books. Um, I, identifying wood, um, the, uh, oh shoot, I just forgot. The guy's name, the, you know, the, 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 the big wood identification guy. Oh my goodness, I'm getting old, folks. Bruce Hoadley, that's the guy's name, jeez. The, his book, Identifying Wood, um, again, the author is Bruce Hoadley. That's kind of long been seen as the book to get when it comes to um, learning to identify wood. I do think it's a good book to have because he's got a lot of great um, photographs of pore structures, uh, parenchyma structures, things like that. But as far as a lot of different species to look at, there's a couple of things in there of, of some uh, full color images, but it's hardly a comprehensive list of a bunch of different species. It's more a book on how to identify wood, not a book of used to identify certain species. The Wood Bible I've found is the best. I actually keep that on my desk at work. It's got a lot of great color pictures and you can just flip through it. And one of the first things I do when it comes to identify a wood is just look at it. You know, what kind of color is it? What does the basic grain look like? And on a, a website like the Wood Database, which by the way is I think the source uh, online, um, you can't really, you can't flip through web pages, right? You know, there are several um, areas on the wood database where you can see kind of a grid of a bunch of different color shots of, of wood, but ultimately being able to flip through it, and most of these books, and the Wood Bible being one of them, kind of group like woods together. So you're flipping through like cherry type colored woods, and you've got a lot of woods, and you see alder right there next to it. Um, uh, and you start to see moving into the white woods and you see birch and maple and soft maple and, and beech all kind of together. And it does allow you to very quickly flip back and forth just by color alone and zero in much quicker with a book in your hand than I think uh, a web page. Once you've kind of done that and you've narrowed things down by color palette, having the web, specifically the wood database, 
is really the place to go. There are other sites that I've used, but ultimately those are not sites that I you know, can think of off the top of my head. They're sites that I've come across by Googling something very specific. So I've used the book to kind of hone in on things. I've used a wood database to examine pore structure and the actual internal structure. And I maybe I've gotten it down to two or three species and I'm still not certain. I'll start Googling things using those botanical names and I'll come up with other specific industry sites or foreign sites. Say I'm looking for a wood that's in Brazil. I'll end up with like Ibama type resources in Brazil or South American type sites that can help me really come to more of a conclusive identification. So you can see it's not, you know, one or two books or one or two websites. It's a combination of a bunch of different things. The one thing I'll say like Bruce Hoadley's book, is really good if you kind of already know, you know, it's this species or it's one of three species and they happen to be highlighted in his book because he goes in a great deal. Say for instance, you've got a piece of ash and you're not sure whether it's white ash or black ash or maybe it's even sassafras. There's a lot of similarities there. He's got a whole section with side-by-side -side images to help distinguish what makes white ash white ash, what makes black ash, you know, and what are the differences between black ash and sassafras. He goes into some of the, um, you know, details about things like Osage orange. And, and, you know, this is really helpful if I have a piece of Osage orange in my hand and I can read and learn a little bit more about it. It's kind of a great book if you already know what's in your hand and can help you say, okay, this is why I know this is a hunk of Osage orange. And, you know, Bruce tells us, okay, it has, you know, one, two, and three, and you can go, oh, okay, I see that now. Or you're, you're learning about the um, fluorescent properties of black locust. Well, he talks about that and you can, you know, show black light to black locusts and see it fluoresce and it's very cool. Bruce Hoadley's book is really good at kind of giving you the answers when you kind of already know the answer. I know this is a piece of white ash and here's he tells you why. Um, the identification books, again, they're not, they're more of, I know what this species is. You know, I'm holding a piece of purple heart and the book tells me what it will work like, what the technical properties are. So when it comes to, I have an unknown species on my hand, you can't really rely just upon a book. The other thing you have to recognize is you, if you have some idea of the source, like where you got it, that's going to go a very, very long way because some of these books are grouped geographically as well. And they're really going to have kind of the more popular species. So if you got it from a pallet or, you know, a shipping container, it was used as dunnage, that's going to be a tertiary or quadrary species at best. Or it's going to be a very poor example of a primary species, like a very, very low grade, lots of sapwood, lots of defect of a primary species. And it may be very difficult to identify with any of those resources because there's just no way to include every species that's out there. And that's when using a combination of the wood database or a print book to kind of get you down to four or five different species, then doing some Googling of those species can maybe get you to a foreign website or a local website that can help you with that. So convoluted answer, but it's simply to say you can't just have one resource and you need to be flexible and, and rely on using both books and, um, and the internet. So um, this is where... Uh, um, Wes wrote in an email and said uh, a few years ago, uh, I got a box of odds and ends exotic lumber from Bell Forest Products. 
I've had fun learning about the woods and the package, building small stuff from those pieces. Um, however, identifying most of the wood is a complete mystery to me since I mostly build with big box store white woods. So my question is, if someone handed you a piece of wood you never saw before and an open internet connection to the wood database, how would you identify this sample in your hand? And that's really the thrust of this episode. So let me first by start by saying wood identification is in the end grain. So for all the people that have sent me pictures or sent me a message on Instagram with a picture of the face of a board, that really doesn't help me. Unless it's a common species that I have worked with a lot and I can immediately look at it and go, that's white oak, that's red oak, that's cherry, that's hard maple. Um, you know, and even then, sometimes I could be guessing if the colors you know, a little off in that image. But a lot of times, the more common species, the more easily identifiable species, you could look at the face grain and say that's what that is. But ultimately, to be sure, you need to look at the structure, the internal structure of that wood, which the only way we can see that is by looking at the end grain. So that's where you need to start. If you have a board in your hand that you have no idea what it is, look at the face. Obviously you want a clean, freshly milled face if possible, recognizing that a freshly milled wood, the color is going to be more vibrant. It's going to be generally lighter, um, pinker, purpler, redder um, than it will have aged over time. But most of the books are gonna have that same freshly milled surface as well. So you look at the face and you say, okay, it's kind of brown. <laughs> and then you're kind of flipping through the book to find the brown species. That's the first step that I would do. That's really all I'm using the face grain for, is just to give me a general color palette and go from there. The next thing I'm gonna do is look at the end grain and determine, A, is it a hardwood or a softwood? I.e., does it have pores? If it doesn't have pores, it's a softwood. If it has pores, it's a hardwood. So now I know, it's a hardwood, it's a softwood. Um, to do that, you don't really need a whole lot. You know, you can have a really, really rough sawn cut and be able to tell if there's pores, if there aren't pores. From there though, now we need to determine what kind of porosity does it have? Is it ring porous? Is it diffuse porous? Is it semi-ring porous? And this can be difficult with a really rough cut. So for now, you wanna plane that end grain. You wanna get it super clean, you wanna use a super sharp blade and possibly moisten the end grain with something like mineral spirits to give you a really, really clean cut. One of the things is the blade is even slightly dull. Um, as you plane, you may get a smooth surface, but you're kind of stuffing the pores with the dust that you just created with the plane. So plane it smooth and then um, wash the surface with mineral spirits and kind of clean out any of the dust that's on there and get like a super, super clean finish ready surface. And, and when you look in the books and you see these ingrained shots, they have been planed with a super, super sharp blade and then they've been cleaned off and they've been darkened with um, mineral spirits, flushed with mineral spirits. That's ultimately how you wanna prepare that. Um, ideally, if you have a magnifying glass or like a, a small hand loop, like a jeweler's loop, that you can get like 10 times magnification, you'll be able to see a lot of this stuff. The, the, the big ring porous woods, the red oaks and the black locusts and the white oaks and, and, and hickories, they're easy. You know, big giant pores, really easy to see this is ring porous. Um, as you get into the, like the diffuse porous woods with tiny, tiny little pores um, and nearly microscopic medullary rays, you need a magnifying lens. But the magnifying lens is gonna do you no good if you have 
you know, a rough sawn surface. And honestly, if you have a sanded surface, now you might start by sanding and getting to a sanded high grit and then plane it from there. But ultimately sanding is an abrasive process. Um, it's, it's tearing those fibers and it's packing those pores with the dust that's creating. And the finer and finer grit you go, the finer and finer that dust is, so the more tightly packed those pores get. Sanding can actually do more harm than good when it comes to getting a clean ingrain surface. So you gotta get that ingrain clear. Um, so now we've got it clean. We've got a hand loop in hand and we're looking at this board. So the things you need to look about to, to understand what the structure, let's kind of start in order um, of hierarchy. The pores. Is it ring porous? Is it diffuse porous? Is it semi-ring porous? Once you've determined what that is, now you need to look at the size of those pores, the shape of those pores, and their arrangement. So pores don't always have just a single pore. Sometimes there's double pores that are stuck together. Sometimes those pores are perfectly round. Sometimes they're more of a lozenge shape. Um, sometimes they are, they look really, really thin on one side, really thin walled on one side and really thick walled on the other. Sometimes those pores are grouped tightly together um, or they're kind of sparse, um, more sparsely grouped or they're grouped into lines. Um, and this is not ring porous um, and, and diffuse porous. Looking kind of, we've determined it's ring porous. So you've got this band of ring uh, of pores in there. Then just look right at the ring and you might determine some pattern to how those pores within the ring are arranged. All of that is an identifier. The pore size, the pore shape, and their arrangement to one another is incredibly important to tell you this. Now, you can look at the more technical books like Bruce Hoadley's book, and he'll talk about pore size in terms of, of nanometers, um, sometimes millimeters for the bigger pores. Um, no, mostly nanometers. And those numbers don't really mean a whole lot to us. You, you, you need to start looking at a couple different species and you'll think, okay, this species has large pores. And then you pick up another board and you go, oh crap, no, those are large pores. Okay, well, the first species I looked at that I thought were large pores, I'll call them medium-sized pores from now on. And the more species you look at, the more of an idea of your own ranking, whether these are small, medium, or large pores or super small pores, um, th there's not really a, a large pore is X nanometer to X nanometer. Well, there is for botanists, but for the, ad the average Joe, we don't really need to get that detailed. You just need to look at it and kind of compare. And if you look at that and think those are pretty large pores, then you start doing your searching for a large poured ring porous wood or a large poured diffuse porous wood. Let me tell you this. If you have a large poured diffuse porous wood, it's probably wingay. Just stop there. But you can see there are very specific species. There are some unusual things that you run into. This is definitely diffuse porous. The pores are scattered throughout the board. There's no definite bands or rings. There's no ring that blends into kind of mush like you would find in semi-ring porous. It's the pores are scattered all over the place. And these pores are really, really big. That's unusual. Most diffuse porous woods have small pores. So if you find, and I'll just tell you, red oak, hickory, white oak, black locust, those are large poured woods. So if you look at the ingrain sample of any of those and see those pores, call those large. Everything smaller than that, you can go with medium or smaller. Look at maple. Maple has small pores. Hard maple, well, actually just about any maple, but hard maple specifically, those are small pores. 
Walnut, I'd call those more medium-sized pours, just to give you some idea. So you could look at some slides of, 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 of red oak, walnut, and maple, and in that order, large, medium, and small. Um, but that can really help you. Um, and you can go to a site, not a site, the site. Let's just call the wood database the site. It's, it's a great site. And there is a wood filter on there. And you can, over on the, I believe the right-hand side of the page, there's a couple of like little plus drop-down boxes that are advanced filters for hardwoods and for softwoods. When you click open the hardwood advanced filter, it talks about it, you know, you, you're now filtering for ring porous woods or, or semi ring porous woods. You're filtering by pore size, you're filtering by ray structure, things like that. So if you've looked at that ingrain and you've determined it's diffuse porous, it has large pores, go into the wood database and check the box that says diffuse porous, check the box that says large pore, and it's gonna give you some results. What's gonna happen is it's gonna narrow down from a thousand species to like two more than likely one. Like I said, if it's, if it's large poured and diffuse pores, it's going to pop up Wingay because Wingay is weird in that respect. Um, so pore um, structure, pore structure would be ring porous, semi-ring porous, diffuse porous, pore size and arrangement. Start there. Those are easy to see, should be. And with a, with a hand loop, even easier to see. Next, um, Look at parenchyma. Parenchyma, this is where the audio for, uh, format here can be difficult. Look at the pore. Around the pore, you're going to see um, a kind of a tightly packed cell structure. Parenchyma are cells that are grouped right around the pore. And there's a bunch of different types of parenchyma structures. And I mean, you can go you can lose your mind trying to memorize and understand all of the different parenchyma structures. I just went into the, um, the index of Bruce Hoadley's um, Identifying Wood book and looked at parenchyma. And here are the different types. Aliform, apotracal, axial, banded, confluent, defined, uh, diffuse, diffuse and aggregate, epithelial, fusiform, um, longitudinal, marginal, metatracheal, nodular, nodules, <laughs> paratracheal, so vasocentric, terminal, strand, reticulate. Uh, <laughs> these are all, and, and there it goes on. There's a whole bunch more different types of parenchyma. And what we're looking at is those, those cells right around the pore and what kind of structure. Uh, a lozenge-shaped parenchyma means you've got a bunch of tightly packed cells grouped around the pore that form kind of a lozenge shape. The pore itself may be round, but the, we'll, we'll call it the, um, uh, the, uh, the stroke. If you're a Photoshop user and you add stroke to text, it puts a little line around the text or around an image or something like that. Um, it's, it's the drop shadow. It's the stroke around the pore. And how, how much stroke is there? Is it two pixels, one pixel, six pixels? Um, and what shape does that have? Some of the parenchyma make little wings on the side. Some of the parenchyma are, are, have a structure to themselves that may be separate from the pore structure. And understanding, first of all, what the parenchyma is, where I'm looking for. So in general, the parenchyma is going to run horizontally 
across the surface. The rays, you'll look at, you'll look at the, the, the sample and you'll see a lot of lines running vertically and you'll see a lot of lines running horizontally, forming a little grid. The lines running vertically are the rays. The lines running horizontally across the surface are the parenchyma. And you can go to the Wood database. I will post a link to the um, hardwood anatomy page, I think. And he goes into uh, what we talked about before, pore sizes and structure. He goes into parenchyma structure. He goes into rays and grouping and things like that. And more importantly, he goes into all those different types that I read off before, different types of parenchyma and gives good examples. And you can look through those and you can compare it to the sample that you have in your hand and start to understand what type or types of parenchyma am I possibly looking at? And then go back to the wood database, back to that wood filter and begin to start checking boxes and see what am I getting? What type of responses am I getting on the wood filter based on aliform parenchyma? Okay, well, I'm not really sure if it's aliform or, or if it's apotracheal parenchyma. So you check both of those boxes and you see what you come up with. So again, using that um, advanced hardwood ID feature, you will see in there the, the porosity, the pore arrangement, the pore size, the pore frequency, uh, pore contents. I didn't bring that up before if there's like tylose thrown inside there. Um, uh, but more importantly, the parenchyma, is it diffuse and aggregate? Is it vasocentric? Is it lozenge? Is it a confluent, unilateral, banded, marginal, reticulate, scaliform? He's got checkboxes in there to be able to look at all of that. So the next thing in the hierarchy is the medullary rays. And again, those are going to be the lines running vertically in your sample here. And like pores, we want to look at the, uh, the size of each individual ray, kind of what is the width, you know, like pore size. Is it large, medium, and small? Is it a large, medium, uh, a wide, narrow, um, wide, medium, and narrow width ray? And um, what is their arrangement? Are they kind of solitary? Are they... Uh, you know, there's a couple of rays and then there's like four of them bunched all together into what you might call a node, uh, where there are node rays. That's what that's called. Um, and what is the spacing between them? So there is the, the, the width. This is a wide ray and it's spaced really wide apart. Um, those are two, f uh, um, uh, checkboxes in that wood filter and the wood database. They can help you go just a little bit closer. Ultimately, in my experience so far, that has been enough to get me down to like three species um, or, or really get, and, and I can look at it and, and then, you know, if you have three species and you still have no idea, any other information you have, like this is heavy or this is really hard to work um, or when I hold it up to the light, it kind of glitters indicating there's some, you know, a high amount of silica content in this. Or I know that this came from Tanzania, or more importantly, it came from Africa. You can go back to the wood filter and you can click off the geographic boxes. You can click off, this has a strong smell, or this fluoresces under black light. And that can generally get you to that final designation. But these are kind of the other things, the things that I don't really want people to get too caught up in. I get a lot of people email me and they start with the smell or they start with 
the maybe the geographic origin. That's all good information to have and don't turn your nose up at it. But ultimately, the identification is going to come at the end grain. It's going to come by determining the type of pore you're looking at, um, the size of the pore, the structure and arrangement of those pores, the parenchyma type you're looking at, and the ray size and spacing. That's really where that's going to come from. And you got to look at a lot of different samples to start to build your own classification. Like I said before, this pore is big, this pore is medium. What does that mean? Well, for you, it may have meaning based upon the species that you've looked at. Certainly, you do want to have an understanding of the weight of it and its you know, origin and its general color. If you just dive right into the pores and, and the parenchyma and the rays and you're coming up with this example and, and you're thinking, you know, okay, I found it. I found it. This is definitely a big leaf maple. And you kind of take a step back and you're looking at a dark brown piece of wood. Well, that's not big leaf maple. You know, <laughs> so you have to follow that decision tree. Start with that general color palette. Again, this is where the book is useful. Um, have an understanding that this is, you know, you can pick up a board and go, wow, that's heavy. Or, whoa, there's nothing to that. You can kind of get a feel for how hard that board is. And again, the more woods that you've worked, the more experience you have, this is how cherry feels when I work it. This is how walnut feels when I work it. Well, both of them are about 850 jank of hardness. You know, this is how hard maple feels when I work it. Well, that's 1450 Janko hardness. You know, this one makes hard maple feel soft. Okay, <laughs> probably looking at something 2000, 3000 Janko hardness. So you can also, again, use that wood filter and, and tick off those things. Like I talk about going into the advanced filter. Well, the non-advanced filter, the filter that just comes up when you click into the wood filter has things like Janko hardness, has things like color, geography, things like that. Start there and kind of start to narrow things down and you may end up with 10 different species. It's that examination of the pore structure, the parenchyma type and arrangement, where really the parenchyma type, the, the arrangement determines the type, and then the ray arrangement and, and size. That's going to get you there. Those are really the aspects of wood, wood identification. Now, it's not simple. You know, I'm, I'm simplifying it by breaking it down into really those three things in the ingrain. But, you know, you're going to end up with a board where you're just like, I don't know. It could be these three things. I don't know. But then at least you can email somebody like me, or you can go to the guy you bought it from and said, I think this is one of these three species. What do you think? They may have some insight into that. You know, some of it comes from the industry. If you say, okay, I've got a piece of Merbao, um, a piece of Balao, and a piece of, um, I don't know, pull something out of, out of, out of nowhere, uh, Machiche. Um, I'm going to look at those boards and say, where did you buy it? You know, okay, well, I bought it at this store over here. Okay, right away, it's probably Merbao um, because the other two are so less common to go into the retail chain that it's probably not them, you know, or it was part of a, a palette that I got. Okay, well, it's probably not Merbao. It's probably not Merbao because Merbao is a commercially viable species. It's got a, a strong commercial trade behind it. Actually, Michiche is pretty strong as well. Um, but then then there's the other thing. Well, you know, could it be Michiche? Well, let's look at the size of it. You know, is this is this a cutoff from a larger board or is this the board itself? No, it's really just this little pin blank looking thing. Okay, well, it could be Michiche. If it's a huge board, it's not Michiche because it just doesn't, it just doesn't come that way. It's like saying I have a 16 quarter by eight by eight foot long piece of ebony. 
doesn't happen, folks. It just doesn't happen. You know, ebony is, not, I'm not going to say it doesn't happen. It happens at the tree, but ebony is not really sold that way. Ebony is sold for fretboards. So it's generally sawn into fretboard-shaped objects before it's shipped anywhere. Um, you're not going to find a super, super large board of ebony because it's just way too expensive. It, there's just not a strong market for it. It makes more sense to cut it up into smaller pieces. You know, the really, really weird, heavily figured woods and things like that, they tend to be chopped up into smaller things like turning blanks, pepper mills, pool cool blanks, pen blanks, things like that. Once you've got something that small, but if it's specifically been prepared to be a pen blank, that can narrow things down. It's actually, well, it can also make things less narrow because it becomes a lot of different species, a lot of really weird species that maybe are so super expensive that it doesn't make sense to have them in board form. So all of these things, all of these other things, the story of how this board came into your hand and the shape of that board can go into helping to identify it. But starting with all that information without a thorough examination of the ingrained structure will just lead to madness. So hopefully this will give you some idea of where to start, what to look for, and what to research. The Wood Database, folks, is absolutely fantastic. The Hardwood Anatomy page that Eric has put together over there is a really great introduction to parenchyma and rays and, and pores or vessels is the technical term. You can go from there and pick up a book like Bruce Hoadley's book, Identifying Wood, and really get into the weeds. <clears throat> I remember... Uh, when I first started tying my own flies uh, as a fly fisherman, I, I started with, okay, I need to turn a blue dun or I need to turn, you know, a parachute atoms. And I was, I was mimicking already existing patterns that I could buy at the fly shop because I was just wanting to save some money. And it was a lot of fun to tie my own flies. Then I started getting into matching the hatch. And when you start capturing bugs on streamside and doing like entomological examinations of them, you go down the rabbit hole and then you start picking up different books and you start understanding the wing shape of that mayfly and the vein structure in the wing of the mayfly and, and the, the way the tails are organized to really, truly, without a shadow of a doubt, identify that and you start spouting off, you know, Latin uh, taxonomic names for this bug that's in your hand. They're just trying to match the, the hatch. That's down the rabbit hole. That can be fun. As you can tell, I went there um, and it was fun and it was great. And it was allowed me, it took on, when I was tying my own flies, I took on a whole new meaning to what I was tying and it added a whole layer of enjoyment to fly fishing. I'm very much that way with wood as well. I love to get into the weeds and examine the parenchyma and examine the, the rays. This is, this is my idea of a, of a you know, rockin' Friday night. Let's examine the parenchyma. How am I married? I have no idea. <laughs> but you get the point, guys. You can get as into this as you want. Or you can do just a surface understanding of the wood structure, hardwood structure, and really learn a lot. Because actually having an understanding specifically of the ray um, the size of the ray and the distribution of the ray will give you an idea of what that quarterson face is going to look like. Having an understanding of the pore size and structure and arrangement will give you an understanding of how well or how well it won't plane. Um, what kind of finish is going to work well on this? If it's got really, really large pores and you want like a glassy smooth finish, you're going to need a pore filler. These all help further your, your woodworking and further your enjoyment and make you really, really boring at cocktail parties. So that being said, 
granted, I've talked mostly about hardwood. There is um, an advanced softwood filter on um, the wood database as well that starts talking about um, the resin canals there and the trachea diameters and the early to late wood transition. That in and of itself is a whole other thing, but it's the same idea. And then there's a softwood anatomy page on the wood database as well, where you start to understand what you're looking for in early to late wood transitions and, and what the trachea it is in the first place in order to be able to figure out its diameter. This is exactly the same as the hardware identification. Understanding the, the pore shape, size, and distribution, it's the same thing as looking at the trachea diameter. Um, all of this is, is pretty much the same. It's just a series of different terms that you're looking at. And in order to get better at it, you've got to look at more and more softwood examples. So like I said at the beginning of this, if you determine it does not have pores, it's a softwood. So go look up the wood database and its softwood anatomy and start to understand what tracheids are, what they look like, um, the different examples of tracheids and compare it to what you have in your hand and you're going to get uh, the exact same process we talked about for hardwoods. So... Folks, go buy some lumber. Go buy some unknown lumber and learn to identify it. And if you still are stuck, please don't hesitate to email me. I'm happy to receive wood identification emails. But now that this episode is out, I expect that you've done some homework. And if you send me a rough sawn ingrain that's out of focus, I may not respond. I'll probably respond. I respond to all my emails. I'm just too nice. But I'll probably respond and say, clean up that ingrain and then get back to me. Thanks for listening, everybody.